0: Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, editorial director of The Fader. When Kim Cattrall made her long-awaited return as Samantha Jones last week to the Sex and the City spin-off and Just Like That, it was with many, many stipulations. She would appear for no more than 90 seconds in a scene without any of her former co-stars styled by Patricia Field, who did costumes for the original series almost 20 years ago. Not to mention the cheque, which has been rumoured to be in the seven-figure range. Cattrall's rationale for all this, according to an interview with The Guardian, quote, I don't want to be in a situation for even an hour where I'm not enjoying myself. Sadie Dupuis is 35 now, and she's trying to make better choices too. The Speedy Ortiz frontwoman wrote Kim Cattrall, the opening song on her band's new album Rabbit Rabbit, before that Guardian interview was published. But the song's title is an even better fit now. The first speedy project in five years, Dupuis wrote it after escaping an unenjoyable situation of her own, her late 20s. Make no mistake though, Rabbit Rabbit is not a well-adjusted record. A few weeks before Rabbit Rabbit's release, Sadie spoke to The Fader's Walden Green about the books, musical partnerships, life changes, and premium TV actresses that helped shape the album's final form. A messy excoriation of traumas and bad decisions at once catchier and more dissonant than any Speedy Ortiz record before it.
1: I guess we got to start with Kim Cattrall. As in, why her? Why Kim Cattrall?
2: It's funny, I think um, we're taping this the day before she's set to appear on and just like that. So before she had committed to doing this one-minute scene where she brought back original costume designer Pat Field and negotiated all these things to make it as tolerable for herself as possible. She had very staunchly refused to return to the show, citing her treatment by fellow cast members, just that, you know, she was old enough that it wasn't worth it for any price to tolerate uncomfortable work situations and interpersonal relationships. And so the song has really very little to do with Kim Cattrall at all. Um, I wrote it in part after reading Jenny Haval's book, Girls Against God. The song kind of opens with a a nod, not only to that book, but yeah, it's about some of the trauma-informed decision-making that kind of got me to my early mid-30s, which is where I was when I was writing this record. And it's about feeling grateful for having survived not only bad circumstances but my own stupid decisions and feeling like it's you know <laughs> magical to get to be in this world where despite whatever horrors are happening we get to to be with one another so choosing better decisions as i get older so i can continue to have more days on this earth and so when i read all these kim Cattrall interviews about no amount of money will bring me back to the show which is a toxic work environment it's like this kind of lines up with the the sentiment of the song i'm going to make this a kim control Nod. And then, of course, she did say yes to the show, but on her own terms, damn it.
1: That song also had a lyric that really jumped out at me the first time that I heard it when you were like, I'm not like other girls and I am. What's your take on like the not like other girls-ness of it all? Where do you fall?
2: I think part of what I was trying to write in this song, and I think you're the first person who's asked about it, but in my lyrics, ever since I was in high school, I think I've been questioning my own relationship to my gender, whether I relate to any gender identity whatsoever. And that's true in the full speedy discography. I can point to stuff on every record that is under a similar theme. And I think part of what I was ruminating on when I wrote this song is like, the reason I don't sit and think about that and come up with an answer for myself is because I'm processing all these other things from my past and just kind of trying to get through day to day. So in part, it was about not overthinking what I'm doing and who I am, and driving myself insane with these existential questions, because it can pull me out of the magical things in the world around me if I get too focused on who I am and my relationship to myself. And yeah, I mean, it opens with a reference to that Jenny Vovall book, but it's sort of a dual thing. the The line is, "Girls are against God, but I'm not one," and I sort of left it open. <laughs> I'm not a god, and I'm also not a girl. Uh, so that's sort of what I was playing with with
3: this song. Yeah.
1: I noticed at a couple points on the album, you take these symbols of very traditional femininity and recast them as these like oppressive images, like when you talk about the lace of a petticoat around your neck.
2: Oh, yeah, that's on the song. Plus one. What is this story called? The Green Ribbon. Do you know this, this like urban legend ghost story? I think it's from the scary stories to tell in the dark books, but maybe it predates that. The ghost story is like this woman tells her beloved, never untie the the lace around my neck. And the, I can't remember, boyfriend or husband or whatever is so curious about it that one day he does remove the the ribbon around the woman's neck and her head falls off. So that's a little nod to just a, a favorite urban legend. Someone tells you not to take off their neck ribbon. You better not.
1: On this new album, you worked with Sarah Tudzin as like an engineer producer, Sarah, of course, being from Illuminati Hotties. And I guess I'm curious to know, what new sides did she bring out in your sound? How did she shift the creative process behind this record?
2: Well... I'll say Sarah's a good friend and we've worked together before and I'm going to like answer for her because I I also write for Tape Op and I interviewed her for that publication, which is a magazine for recording and engineering. And it's free and much recommended for the listeners who want to know more about nerdy stuff like this. So Sarah definitely fulfills all kinds of roles on different projects. And I think going in on this together, she knows about me as a producer and a co-producer, I come in with a ton of stuff pretty much already decided. I, I try to come in with as drastically overstuffed a blueprint as I could possibly create at home because studio time is expensive. And if you don't know what you need to capture, uh, it's a really easy way to get into a money pit that our band fund certainly could not have afforded after however many years of not touring. So uh, even before we got into rehearsals as a four-piece I had made demos where I was like, the drums should be you know, vaguely this. The bass should be vaguely this. Here's all the guitar parts I can think to write. Sometimes Andy wrote some different ones to add to it. Sometimes he took over some that I wrote. I wrote a bunch of keyboard parts, similar deal. Sometimes Andy replayed those. Sometimes we mixed them in with what I already did. But the direction of the songs was pretty decided before Sarah was coming on board. This is not to say that on other projects she works on, she doesn't have more of a steering role. And I think what makes her a great collaborator is she can do it all she can just hit record and set up some mics or she can be getting into the nitty-gritty and crafting different sounds but because she kind of already knows how i work because we worked on the the last sad routine record together to some extent as well the mission from the start was how do we record this as well as possible so that all of these details that are already composed into it can shine a lot of the places where her creativity could come through was in like let's set up these three different amps and let's have two different mics on each of them and let's figure out the blend between those. It was definitely more in the technical world, which was great. And I think we have a ton of musical and other like artistic taste in common. So there's a pretty solid shared language there. We're often going to suggest the same things to one another, which makes us a good creative team.
1: Speaking of the SAD13 project, the last record that you put out from that, is is more recent than the last Speedy Ortiz record, moving away from the band and sort of devoting yourself to these like solo
2: projects.
1: How has that come back to inform the full band work that you're doing as like the front person of Speedy Ortiz?
2: So the last record we had out for Speedy was in 2018. We toured on it pretty extensively. And then throughout 2019, while we were touring, I would just book studio time in different cities where we were going for instance we we play a festival in san francisco i'll fly out two days early and go work in a studio so that was kind of how the last sad 13 record came together it was very much like built around speedy touring and stealing time where i could and similar deal with the the book i put out in the pandemic it was written very much in the midst of speedy touring and sad 13 touring and just stealing time where i could to, to think of a different creative pursuit i have in the past had a hard time tapping into creative mindset and energy while on tour. A lot of touring feels very rote. Um, We're not (laughs) staying in hotels, certainly not getting my own room. So there's not really space to sprawl out and try things and experiment, which is what I like to do when I'm working on production or writing. So I worked on these projects really like while Speedy was the priority. And then in the pandemic, there was no full band playing or tour. I mean, some people did, but That was not something we were up to. And so not only my creative pursuits, which were, you know, the promo around the Sad 13 albums, a lot of live streams, not my favorite thing. And then editing my book. And then there was a reissue of the earliest Speedy Ortiz material, which had been solo home recordings. But I really went in and like remixed them to a pretty intensive degree. And then all my freelance work is like me alone as well, whether that's me writing or whether that's me. I did some scoring and production stuff for other people's projects, but I'm doing it all for my home studio. So I really was very excited to get to come back to a more collaborative working relationship and get to work with my bandmates. And so what I do bring to it is I got a lot better at production and mixing in the pandemic because I had to. A lot of these sort of solitary tasks I got better at because that was the only thing to focus on. And so the pre-production was a lot more intensive. The sounds I was able to generate are more interesting than I think I knew how to make before. But at the same time, that was true of all my bandmates as well. They were also all sitting by themselves and getting better at different things or taking time away from an instrument and having that inform their approach when they returned. So I think we all kind of Did our own thing for a few years, and resulted in a really interesting collaboration. When we were finally able to get in the practice space together,
1: I totally see that come through on Rabbit Rabbit too, because it's such a hi-fi record. I think like there's just so much detail and clarity with respect to the way that it's recorded.
2: Yeah, we really, um, and this is something that Sarah was incredible for, as well as David Catching, who runs. Rancho de la Luna, it was like every single sound, we'd go to the demo, we'd listen to how does the bass sound on the demo? Okay, what pedals will accomplish that? What combination of amplifiers? Okay, now we've got to pick an arsenal of mics to record all of it. And then what kind of blend? So there was a lot of that kind of nitty gritty decision making. And it was certainly one of the more intensive recording and mixing processes I've been part of, but that's like my favorite part of the whole thing. So it was really intensive, but fun.
1: You also mentioned the poems that you were writing on your last tour, which I'm assuming are what sort of came together to form Cry Perfume.
2: Yeah, I wrote that in between 2016 and 2020. So it was like a pretty long chunk of time. But because I was touring, it would be like you just take moments where you can to to focus on something. You don't always have the energy to write poetry when you're driving eight hours a day and then playing a gig and not getting to the place you're sleeping till three in the morning and whatever else.
1: What do you find... Holds consistent between writing poetry and writing music, and what do you find really is sort of distinct between those two?
2: Poetry, it feels different to me in my process, is it kind of contains its own music. So when I'm writing songs, I tend to do a tremendous amount of the arrangement and production before I've really done the lyrics. I might have melodic ideas, I might have some like syllables that I know need to go in a certain place, but I don't tend to write a whole thing of lyrics and then build around that. I kind of build all the stuff and then the lyrics are the icing. So when I'm writing a poem, I'm not writing to drums. I'm not writing to bass. I'm not writing to this synth part there. The poetry has to provide all of that infrastructure. So it really feels like more of an improvisatory form, even when I've spent quite a lot of hours editing it down and giving it that shape. It just feels like it It provides its own music. It provides its own visuals. It has all of these other senses cooked into a stanza or a page or, or even a few lines. So that's something I really value it for. Crafting poetry to me feels like a visual art as well as a musical art. And of course, like the literary art is part of it. But um, yeah, you're really relying on the poem to provide all this infrastructural stuff that you don't have to cook into lyrics as much. A lot of pressure, but it's fun
1: <laughs> of the songs on the new record, Ballad of y and s sounded to me like it was really about not only the process of like creating art, but like of putting it out into the world to be consumed. What's the take on that that you were trying to get across to listeners with that song?
2: so i I read this book, Red Comet," which is a very long biography of Sylvia Plath. It's a thousand pages long. And, I read this in December of 2021 when I was doing all the pre-production on this record and finishing up all the writing before I sent it to my bandmates to start rehearsal. So I read that Sylvia Plath had dated someone in college, that Yoko Ono also dated in college. I love gossip, especially Gossip from like half a century before I I find it out. So I thought this was a a really interesting juxtaposition of two artists that I don't really think of as in conversation with one another or really as from the same era, but they very much are. And I started to consider other similarities in their lives and careers and to different ends, of course, but both have this very uh, academic, like fine art training and then go on to produce this very wild and vibrant and groundbreaking confessional art in different corners of art. But I think there was a similar impulse in their work, certainly in Sylvia Plath's life and for many decades after it, and certainly in John Lennon's life and for many decades after it, both Yoko Ono and Sylvia Plath, their work was considered secondary to their male partner's work. So I started to think about sort of a cultural shift that I witness now where a lot of confessional art produced by women or at least produced by non-men, there's this real emphasis on the confessional aspect of it and less of a interest in the craft aspects or the formal aspects. There's this real like focus not only on confessional art, but on the, the confessional explanation of the art. And it feels more commercially valued than it was in decades prior in a way that feels strange as someone uh, engaged in an artistic practice. So that was sort of my long-winded nine things, uh, you know, intersecting, thinking about putting my trauma, my (laughs) worst thoughts about myself into pop songs and then uh, asking for them to be licensed for podcasts or whatever. There's a strangeness to creating work in this kind of uh, late capitalist (laughs) environment.
1: So would you, I guess, consider the work that you do to be Confessional,
2: yeah, and I, I think part of why I, I read whatever these Sylvia Plath things come out every few years. She certainly was one of my first poetic influences, and a lot of the poetry and songwriters I like, I think, work in that vein. Um, that's not to say that's entirely what I'm doing in my songs, and I certainly draw from fiction and from documentarian elements that have nothing to do with me, but i I do feel, in the vein of memoirists. And I mean, I look at like someone like Annie or who's granted she's a Nobel prize winner and has had a many decades career of extreme literary fame. But I feel like there's a real moment for Annie or right now where everybody I know is reading like 20 of her books at once. And this is the most like gutting, straightforwardly told confessionalism I can imagine. It's reportage about the writer's most painful thoughts, feelings, memories, experiences. So I do feel inspired by by work like that and have frequently used my own life for material. But I also have to roll my eyes at the way that that's having a moment in pop music.
1: There's a difference, right, between pop musicians being held to this extremely high standard of authenticity by like their fan bases vis-a-vis actually like, pulling from one's own life and using music as a vehicle to, like, process things.
2: Yeah, and I think that songwriting mode has been pretty de rigueur in indie rock for as many decades as I've been alive. It's just there wasn't such a spotlighted focus on the... I mean, the genius.comification of lyricism has really um, brought a lot of the, like, biographical material into the spotlight. I mean, you look at... What was I listening to? I'm not even going to say. I've been starting to run again, which has been an on-and-off thing for me since I was 15, 16. So, for like 20 years, I've been running off, off and on. And sometimes, when it's a slog of a run, I just want like comfort, stupid gym rock. So, I, I listened to a lot of the toxic, weird, gross lyrics that I really, really liked when I was 15, 16, starting running. And I was listening to one the other day that I'm not going to name for the sake of my own embarrassment. But I was like, these lyrics are so fucked. What does genius.com have to say? And there's nothing, and yet you look at something that's a little bit more subtle and nuanced and contemporary. <laughs> the armchair analysis on Genius.com is like, I could buy the spark notes of it. So I do feel like there's been this turn to to very literal lyrical analysis. If I tell you what a song's about, I can tell you literally what it's about, but the lyrics aren't a one-to-one portrayal of that. And I, I don't know. There's a strangeness to that expectation coming alongside releasing lyrics at all.
1: Part of the sense that I got and correct me here if I'm totally reaching, but is that the like the lyrics on Rabbit rabbit feel at many points like designed to resist that kind of easy one to one interpretation.
2: I think that's just my style at this point. I always really was drawn to lyrics that I had to reread and that I had to look up words in, and I had to look at for the third time to understand how different parts of it intersected. Oh, this line in verse one is playing with this part in the bridge two and a half minutes later. I really like connecting those kinds of dots as a listener and as a reader. So I think that has just been part of my writing style for so long. So even if there was like a conscious effort to resist the typical verse chorus structure, it's just like cooked in at this point because I've been writing since I was pretty little. I gotta swallow
3: when it, it's in my face Rather than hawking out a spit, take taste Replace my predecessor over a No
1: You've talked a lot about how the title of this album comes from this like mantra that you would repeat as like a sign of good luck. But in terms of connecting the dots, one thing that I also noticed was the ranch versus ranch lyric, where you sing, no little bunny wears a rabbit skin coat. I'm guessing there has to be at least some dual meaning behind the title that goes beyond that one explanation.
2: Yeah, I mean, that lyric predates us naming the record this. I think I wrote that song in late 2019, or at least that lyric. I have a ton of, you know, my my voice memos is just full of like, I got out of the shower and sang one line into the phone four years ago. When it's time to write a record, I go through every single thing since the last time we made a record and write down the number and the BPM and the key signature of the lines or melodies that seem like usable. I think I worked on the demo when I was working on Rabbit Rabbit, which was not its title yet, uh, on it was like my birthday, possibly. So I'm a big fan of the birthday song. I feel like when you are just considering yourself getting one year older, it's a it's a great place to reflect on the world and your place in it and how you're seeing things differently. It's a good good state of the union uh, address as a songwriter. The, this song, Ranch vs. Ranch, was sort of written about similar to Kim control I turned 33 and I am making much better choices than I was when I was 23, and I'm older and scarier in a good way. I just watched this Netflix show, or I guess it's a, a miniseries, Brand New Cherry Flavor, uh, which was sort of this like 90s period piece, a lot of weird body horror. And the soundtrack is all like, 90s soundtrack stuff like Folk Implosion uh, is on it. It was like all the stuff that I, you know, that you see in like kids, they, they now are bringing into Netflix shows to make them period pieces. So I kind of tried to write a song for a show like that about getting older and scarier. and uh, Anyway, all this said, I hated the song when we were working on it. I did not want to put it on the album. I was like, the song that I like the least always becomes the most popular one. What if I circumvent this and we just skip this song altogether? My bandmates were like, no, we like this one. So I, I kept calling it disparagingly Spy versus Spy because it just sounded like... Like a spy soundtrack to me, or something. And then when we were working at Rancho de la Luna, and we were going to Sonic Ranch next, I think it was Andy who was like, "We should call that uh, Ranch versus Ranch instead of Spy versus you know, Spy versus Spy wasn't the real title. It was me making fun of the song. I think once it had that context, I could I could like it again. Uh, so anyway, the bunny wearing a rabbit fur coat is sort of um, now to return to John Lennon. This is the most times I've ever said John Lennon in one day. Uh, I feel like I'm doing some like I am the walrus. <laughs> shit on this song. It's part of why I didn't like. I'm just like, what am I talking about? This is just goofy word substitutions and and that wordplay that was funny to me when I was writing it It is, can this really sustain a song? I think having that lyric in there and then... um, Yeah, Andy, my bandmate, who I just attributed that song title to, at some point asked me why I tweet Rabbit Rabbit on the first of every month, and I kind of explained where that comes from and that it's a good luck thing that people say when they first wake up on the first of every month, and I've been doing it since I was a little kid. And he's like, oh, we should call an album that sometime. And what he didn't know is that when I started working on this album, it was the first of a month, and I opened up a a Word doc and typed Rabbit Rabbit up front. I was just like, making a joke in Google to myself. I was not seriously considering titling the album that. But then Andy said it and it all snapped into place.
1: It's so funny that you mention writing Ranch Versus Ranch as like a soundtrack song for like a Netflix show set in the 90s because the first time I heard it, I was like, there's something almost new metal about this. Like there's something almost like, a Deftones song about this, which never would have I would I have thought like Speedy Ortiz new metal.
2: Yeah, there is a a more direct Deftones homage on the album. And I can't remember where Ranch vs. Ranch came in the writing process versus the other one, which is Who's Afraid of the Bath. But I did write that one as sort of an intentional Musical homage and then like lyrical response or analysis critique of um, digital bath. I love Deftones. tones. We really all do. And I was trying to find the other day. This is the terrible thing about media consolidation and then the disappearing of our archives. But I feel like I remember some really funny, goofy interviews that we all did. You know, Speedy's been around long enough that 11, 12 years ago, goofy interviews we did. And I remember doing. An interview I want to say with Chart Attack that was just all about new metal. This is like the year 2014. We were just like new metal is cool. We never stopped listening. Here are all the things we like. New metal will come back. And then of course, like six years later, Rina Sawayama started doing new metal. Like I feel like a lot of pop things have now uh, turned a, a positive eye toward new metal. But we never we never stopped believing. We always loved new metal. So. I just hadn't felt that I knew how to interpret some of those sounds before, but I do now. And that's where Who's Afraid of the Bath came from.
1: Who's Afraid of the Bath also reminded me of that, uh, not like the other girl's lyric back on Kim Cattrall because it felt very sort of like an anti-manic pixie dream girl anthem.
2: So I, I think of a song like Digital Bath and I could think of like 30 songs that I feel similarly about where I was blown away by this when I was younger and I still think it sounds amazing, but I look at the lyrics now and I feel a little troubled by them. And Digital Bath... Basically describes in very poetic terms, uh, someone randomly murdering a woman <laughs> as like a cool source of imagery. that's that's basically like what it's doing. So I think about all these songs that I grew up on and grew up loving. And then I think about some difficult experiences I've been through that other people I know have also been through, which is I've experienced stalking. and I have experienced uh, abuse in a relationship. and you think about the way that songs like this, it's not to say that there's any one-to-one correlation, and I certainly don't believe that showing violence in art is the causality that that causes violence to occur, but what does it mean to be identified in someone else's mind as the subject of violence in the way that songs like this have portrayed and reflected to us when we were younger? So that's sort of what I used the song to explore the way that violent fantasies are are projected onto women for the sake of art, then there's a reflection of that in, in real life, in my life and in the lives of my friends. So um, it doesn't come to any like neat conclusion. I'm, I'm really talking about my own experience, but I thought it could be helpful for me to reflect it through the like sonic palette of something that had showed that kind of violence to me when I was younger. So that that's sort of where that song came from and how the meaning connected to the lyrics.
1: Are there other new musical reference points that you and the band were drawing from when you were making Rabbit Rabbit? Things that were sort of like on your radar that maybe weren't on previous Speedy Ortiz releases?
2: Well, so something about this record is I very intentionally tried to keep newer sounds out of it and in part, it's because I was exploring my relationship to music and why I started to write songs and and why I was drawn to playing in bands. And also, I was writing this during the pandemic, and I think a lot of us were doing com- comfort listening of going back to things that maybe we grew up with or we're very familiar with. Which is not to say I haven't listened to a ton of new records, and I I do every week, but I tried to keep that out of this record. And I was specifically looking at stuff from like 2001, 2002, 2003, maybe 2004 is like the latest point. But basically the stuff that I was inspired by when I was first playing guitar and playing in bands, I thought it would be interesting to enter songwriting through a place of homage to the stuff that first inspired me, especially since I was... Trying to explore like what drew me to music in the first place, it felt appropriate to do that in the style of some of the things that that drew me in. I was going back and listening to a lot of Mars Volta and Trail of Dead and um, Deftones, as we mentioned, and Queens of the Stone Age, um, which is part of why we wound up at Rancho de la Luna, Rilo Kylie, Cursive, some of the Saddle Creek bands, the stuff that I was really excited by when I first started writing songs
1: the more like Rilo Kiley Saddle Creek end of the spectrum i was feeling a lot of on this run of gentler songs towards the end of the album which which is actually like my favorite part of the record the emergency in me the sunday brace the period at the end. I'm curious, was structuring the record to have these sort of peaks and valleys a conscious decision on your part? To be like, I want these parts to be very up and then these parts to be more like down.
2: Yeah, I mean, we go pretty deep into the sequencing and print a million different versions of it to see what flows the best. And this is one of the first times we've had to change the sequence because of the restrictions of what can be stored on like like an LP. Uh we switched kitty and who's afraid of the bath because we knew we wanted side B to open with Who's Afraid of the Bath. And there was like a 30-second disparity in length, so we had to push kitty to the end of side A. Uh this is neither here nor there. Um yeah, we if I show you my notebook, I'm sitting in front of it. I have written out here like every single key signature, like often the verse is in a different key than the chorus. Uh, or there will be tempo changes. But I wrote down every single one that occurred and made a chart. And if there were too many things in a certain key, I'd like transpose it. So there's a lot of really finicky decision making going on, even from day one of pre-production or, yeah, like key tally. How many verses are in B or G or G sharp and how many choruses? And if there were too many, I moved it around. I will put it out there. If you do things like this, uh, see if you have OCD, because I do. <laughs> that might be your first tell. I like to explore all options, and we tried a lot of different sequences. I think what's fun about the the two kind of quiet sounding ones going into one another, um, the Sunday, which is really very much about my relationship to music and why I started playing and also questioning my motivations for playing and uh, but both songs really like, why do I seek the validation of that playing music brings me? So brace the, I think what we all really like about that arrangement it's slow, very intentionally. So as like an aggressive affront. So even though it's starting with this kind of arpeggiated acoustic digitally glitching thing, it's so so aggressively slow that when it does build to the louder parts it just provides a lot of opportunity for like emotional expansion and uh like a heaviness to it so we had a lot of fun filling that one out and like a jump scare of a song (laughs) where you think it'll be a a second acoustic one in in a row and then it has like the heaviest riff and drums on the record
1: And of course, then it goes into Ghostwriter, which is so up-tempo, which literally sounds like some lost shoegaze pop like crossover hit from the 90s.
2: Yeah, that one cracks me up because it's one of the last ones I wrote for the album. And um, my partner is in the band Cloud Nothings. And I think despite some like forward Facing similarities, our music and our processes are so different. Everything about our writing processes is like, and considerations around songwriting is very, very different. And when I wrote that song, I was like, haha, like this kind of sounds like one of your songs. I feel like a lot of Dylan's lyrics are, there's like an optimism to them, even when they he's screaming or, you know, it's really heavy. There, there's frequently this like optimistic outlook that things can change or get better or, you know, even when. <laughs> Yeah, especially his later songs. And I feel like that's frequently not my songwriting mode. My mode is like, how the fuck am I still alive? Why do I think and do these horrible things to myself? There's like a darkness and a rage to my lyricism. And yet this song is is about me grappling with that darkness and rage and, and trying to move past it for the sake of productive change to the world. It feels more optimistic than than a lot of other speedy stuff. And so my my joke to myself in calling it Ghostwriter, again, we look at like musicians whose artistic output was sort of overshadowed by their more popular male partners. Look at like the whole records where people are like Billy Corgan ghost wrote that whole record or Kurt Cobain ghost wrote that whole record. I'm like, oh, this is like the song that Cloud Nothings ghost wrote for speaking. So that's how it got that title.
1: <laughs> Obviously, there's a, a statement being made there in choosing to end the album on, I guess, like the most optimistic... Note, even if it is maybe a bit out of character for you,
2: that's right. Making better choices as we get older—you can't be angry twenty-four hours a day. You could, you know, pick twenty-three and then uh, take a bubble bath. <laughs> I just read, um, or I didn't finish it yet, but I'm reading the China Mieville book called *A Spectre Haunting*. That's sort of like a recontextualization of the Communist Manifesto, but it kind of ends with this like really great thing about how hate and love are so connected and that to make any kind of lasting change and to, to be in struggle for a better world out of love is like driven frequently and powered by hate. And movements that result in good things out of love for community are frequently <laughs> powered by hate. So that made me feel a little bit better about my sentiment in, in Ghost Rider. I'm like, yeah, I can be angry. I do it all for love.
0: That was Speedy Ortiz's Sadie Dupuis talking to The Fader's Walden Green. Speedy Ortiz's new album, Rabbit Rabbit, drops this Friday, September 1, by Wax9 Records. The Fader interview is engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Raphael Helfand. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you left a five-star rating and review. And keep an eye on TheFader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Fader. Goodbye until then.